Coming Up is a podcast brought to you by the dedicated and diverse volunteers at 3CR. Just a quick message before you get there. For the month of June, we're asking listeners to donate to the station to help keep us going. In 2023, we're asking our community to stay tuned, stay radical. We rely on the generous donations of the community to survive. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate and show your support for community-owned and community-run media. Thanks for your support and happy listening. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people, and we are broadcasting to the Kulin Nations. Our focus is economics, that is, how stuff is produced and distributed. We recognise that for many tens of thousands of years, First Nations people's connection to country successfully embodied the world's oldest continuous economy, which was catastrophically disrupted by genocide and displacement. We acknowledge that we have much to learn to reshape our current extractive and exploitive system to achieve sustainable prosperity for everyone. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Welcome to Radio MMT. How are you, Anne? Hello, Kevin. And hello to our lovely Larry and Larissa, who I'm sure are joining us for the next hour. Larry and Larissa and the in-betweener. And the in-betweener. Now, this week, we're focusing on one of the founders. Kevin, this is going to be a very special episode because we are returning to the United States to speak with, as you say, one of the founders of modern monetary theory, MMT, which, of course, Radio MMT follows. We're talking, of course, of um, uh, Randall Ray, who, along with uh, Bill Mitchell and Martin Watts, uh, co-authored the very excellent book, Macroeconomics. And Professor Randall Ray, he is uh, an emeritus professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And he is a current professor of economics at Bard College in New York and senior scholar at the Levy Economics Institute. And he will be seen as a pivotal figure in providing us with an economics that's going to get us out of this mess. The mess has been produced by neoliberal economics. Cool. Anyone listening, if you still think that the federal government needs rich people in order to spend money on things like getting to 100% renewables, or if you think that the federal government needs money from gas exports in order to spend on things like social welfare... Randall Ray is one of those people who has helped us to see that this is totally not how federal government spending works. And Kevin, this conversation was so special that I'm going to have to ask us all to put up with a bad sound connection that we had at the time. Uh, So the audio quality is not up to our usual standard. Yes, but you can still hear him. Yeah. So let's have a listen. Today we are absolutely thrilled and honoured to bring you one of the founders of a school of economic thought called Modern Monetary Theory or MMT. 
And it really does unshackle your mind when it comes to seeing what's possible for us as a society. So, Professor Randall Ray, welcome to Radio MMT. Hi, thanks for having me on. Am I correct in thinking that you're recently retired from the University of Missouri, Kansas City, otherwise known as UMKC, where you were the Professor of Economics and Research Director for the Center of Full Employment and Price Stability? Yes, uh, that was about seven years ago, I think, that I retired and went to the Levy uh, Institute full-time. Is the UMKC still going strong as a hotbed of um, MMT-style economics? Uh, yes, it is. Um, Matt Forstadter is still there, Scott Fulweiler, and others. So the Levy Economics Institute and UMKC are pretty much the hotspots in America for MMT. Uh, yes. We have a lot of students who have graduated with their PhDs. They are spread around the country. Uh, some of them teach graduate students. A lot of them teach undergraduate students. So there actually are quite a few colleges in the U.S. that have MMT taught. That is such good news to hear. Do you think in your lifetime that you will see policymaking, you know, either in the USA or in Australia or somewhere else, Policy making that is grounded in an MMT understanding of the economy? Um, that's a bit of a trick question. 80% of MMT is explaining how governments really spend. And um, the people who do the spending certainly understand what they're doing. So, yes, they, they have an equivalent to MMT understanding. And what we did was We've been trying to teach other people how the government really spends. So this isn't news to anyone who is actually doing the spending. Now, it is very new to the elected representatives who are um, formulating and passing the budgets. Uh, you know, that's the key. We've got to get them on board because they're the ones who think that the government could run out of money who think that maybe it'll use tax revenue, maybe it will borrow, or finally, maybe it will print up currency and spend. Uh, so they don't understand this. Now, anyone who is actually in the operations part of government understands there's only one way that government spends, and that is by keystroke credits to bank accounts. Mm -hmm. And so then we can see what, uh, you know, sort of, uh, all the free lunches that we're leaving on the table because we don't understand uh, how government really spends. Are we finally seeing at a uh, an institutional level some pushback against the, uh, the the teachings of the Chicago School of Economics? We've now got other uh, academic institutions in America offering an alternative to their ideology. Yes. You know, the way that I've always seen this, um, and I, I did work in government for a while. Um, the uh, elected representatives and the, the people who uh, work in the government bureaucracy, and I, I'm not using that as a bad word. Uh, governments have to have bureaucracies, and firms have bureaucracies too. You know, they are not really seeking advice from economists. What they do is they seek out economists who will justify what they want to do. <laughs> you know, when uh, you have a government that is dominated by conservative, reactionary politicians, 
they, of course, will seek out the Chicago schools, uh, the Chicago boys who uh, helped uh, set up Pinochet's government in Chile. Mm. Um, so anyway, what they want is verification of what they want to do. Mm. And if we can get more progressive people uh, into office, they will seek out uh, MMT and uh, progressive points of view. So I, I think that the the influence of economists is a, a bit overrated <laughs> as far as policymaking goes. MMT scholars are an unusually active bunch, and I have noticed that you yourself have got no less than two books coming out this year. Uh, one of them's called Modern Monetary Theory, Key Insights and Leading Thinkers. Would you recommend that for the general public, or is that more an academic book? Yeah, that is an, uh, a co-edited book with a number of editors. That one really is for a more academic audience. Mm -hmm. But I have two books that are aimed for the general population. Mm -hmm. The one that is out is Making Money Work For Us. And the one that is coming out in May is The Illustrated Guide to Money. So the first one can be read by um, college students, probably high school students, and the general public. The one that will come out in May is a cartoon book. And that one is aimed for a younger audience or an audience that can uh, learn better with uh, pictures and few words instead of uh, sitting down and reading a 120-page book. That's a that's excellent. MMT or economics in general is seen as a fairly you know dry kind of a field. And uh, illustrating it, I think, is just a marvelous idea. Are you teaching from the textbook Macroeconomics by uh, Mitchell, Ray, and Watts? Uh, yes. Since uh, Actually, since we had a draft, <laughs> I've been <laughs> using that in classes. So I've used it uh, with master's level students. Um, also, I've done it at the um, sophomore, junior level, which is second and third year college students. Uh, quite a few times. Mm -hmm. My colleagues at uh, Bard also use it for the undergraduate students. And um, it's used by lots of my former students around the U.S. and um, by many other people, too. That's brilliant news. We've got a photo of it on our homepage, and I'll link to it as well. We're updating it with a second edition, and we also are likely to have a separate split of the book that is only for the intro level classes. Mm. And we would have, you know, what's called a principles textbook instead of an intermediate level textbook. In an interview that you did on a podcast called Hopping Mad back in October 2016, you mentioned that you had experienced long-term unemployment yourself. And as someone who is very familiar with that situation, that jumped out at me. And I was wondering if this was before you had started studying economics and, in fact, whether this experience had any impact on your approach to economics. Yeah, well, I um, graduated from college during the 1974-75 uh, recession. It was our first really, really serious recession in the U.S. Unemployment was the highest since the Great Depression. And it was very difficult to get a job. 
I mostly focused on psychology and education. So I was looking for a teaching job. I like teaching um, nine-year-olds about that age. That was my plan. Uh, but not only did we have a recession, we also had, very unusually, a surplus of teachers. Usually it's the other way around. So your understanding that you'd sort of fallen out of college in a moment of high unemployment, is that an understanding you've achieved in retrospect? Well, um, I came from a, a, a working class family where jobs were always difficult to find. And um, mm. I, I was always encouraged to uh, do well in school so that I could go to college. Uh, my father uh, left school at age 13 and uh, was a mechanic and worked his whole life that way. Mm. Uh, he ended up working at Campbell Soup Company. I don't know if you guys know what Campbell Soup is. but <laughs> Yes, yes okay. that's worldwide with the Warhol. He, he worked there, and um, I uh, got scholarships from Campbell Soup Company and from the Teamsters Union to go to college. Okay. And they promised me, they said, look, if you ever need a summer job, you can get one here. And so I did work at Campbell Soup uh, Company a couple of times. Um, so I, I always w was um, concerned with unemployment and low wages and mm. uh, people who were not treated well at work. And we were a pro-union family. And so... Uh, President Carter came in in 1976. Uh, jobs were still very hard to find. And he ramped up a program that already existed called CETA, Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, which created jobs mm -hmm. in the public sector. I was continuing to take night classes in college because as long as I was half time in school, I didn't have to start repaying my student loans yet. And I was um, just sampling everything. Mm. I was taking a, a course for water treatment plant operators, <laughs> which actually was very interesting. Learned about uh -huh. um, hydraulics and um, uh, water pressure and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a, a civil service uh, examination that was to get into government employment in sort of engineering type jobs. So I took that test and I did well. And um, the federal government was paying the wages for these CETA jobs. And our uh, local county had some openings for research analysts. And they hired me into it. And I ended up writing the specifications for garbage trucks. <laughs> I did not know this about you. <laughs> I, I learned a lot about garbage trucks and garbage collection and did time and motion studies of garbage collection. <laughs> <laughs> and then we undertook an analysis to implement a curbside recycling program where people put their recycling out on the street and gets picked up. I think there were only three of those in the United States at that time. And I did all of the um, estimates, basically input-output analysis uh, for the program. Uh -huh. And um, when the CETA funding ran out, the county extended my position. So I became more of a county employee. Then I moved on to the Energy Commission, 
and I estimated agricultural demand for electricity for California. That was my job. And uh, going to night school, I switched to economics. Mm. So all these years that I was working for the county and then the state governments, I was um, taking economics courses. So that's why I ended up in economics. It was completely unplanned. Mm. And um, I, I found out that uh, I was pretty good at it. And my teachers kept um, pressuring me to um, apply for PhD programs. So then I, um, I, I went to a very unusual uh, state school, Sacramento State University. The department was unusual because it had Marxists, it had institutionalists, uh, it had very progressive environmentalists on the staff, and also the typical neoclassical. And so I was exposed from the very beginning um, to heterodox economics. Mm. And I, I, of course, preferred that. And my professors uh, tried to convince me to go to a PhD program. And one of them, John Henry, uh, said, you seem to really like Keynesian economics. Uh, you should go study with Hyman Minsky, mm. who's the greatest living Keynesian economist. And so, in the end, that's where I went. My second choice was Kenneth Boulding, who was one of the greatest institutionalist economists. And I got accepted there, too. But uh, John Henry convinced me Washington University was a better place to go. But I ended up in my first job at University of Denver, which was only uh, 30 miles away from Kenneth Boulding, who lived in Boulder. Mm -hmm. And I got to know him very well. We used to meet monthly at the house of Gladys Foster, who was the wife of Jay Fag Foster, who I had learned all about at Sacramento from his student, Mark Toole. Mm. So I, I ended up having the best of both worlds. I got to study with Minsky, and I got to know Boulding very well. Amazing. I think the stars were aligned for all of us. This is Bill Mitchell. You're listening to my favourite Melbourne radio station, 3CR, with Anne and Kev. Great program. Great guests. <laughs> when, when people are asking what is MMT, one answer is that MMT has taken insights from a variety of heterodox schools of economic thought. So that would include the institutionalists, the post-Keynesians and the Marxists, and MMT has combined them into one consistent story about the economy. Randall Ray's personal trajectory through economics encompasses this range of economic thought. Randall Ray, he's um, come at this not directly, but sort of sideways, you know, working in other jobs. Mm. I was particularly interested um, when you asked the question, do you think the policymakers will develop an MMT understanding of how the economy works? And from what I'm understanding of, of what he's saying is that they have an understanding of what they're doing. And as MMTers, we understand that they understand. So, <laughs> so, so, Well, he was saying that the people who have anything to do with the actual spending mechanism, so I think he means the people at the central bank or even in the treasury. But the elected politicians, he said, often don't. Yes, uh, and uh, you and I 
No. And anybody who knows how the, the Reserve <laughs> Bank works, we all know. And he, uh, Philip Lowe, the governor of the Reserve Bank, must mm, know that. Yeah. I think he gets paid the big bucks to be the fall guy for, for stuff that he isn't even responsible for. Yeah. He would have to be very careful of every word that he speaks because mm. he's describing something that he knows uh it doesn't function the way that it's perceived. <laughs> Once you get your head around these basics of modern monetary theory, I think you can listen to the public discourse in a slightly different way. And sometimes I think I've heard Phil Lowe literally, well, in the past, literally pleading for the coalition government to spend more. <laughs> yeah, and, and he was uh, yeah, quite open, saying, yeah, I can only do what I can do. Uh, can you guys give me a hand here? And, of course... Their, their ideology says, no, mate, you're the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you say, it is interesting to see what goes into the making of what I think is one of the greatest living economists. Uh, Randall Ray had an engineering background. I know a lot of engineers get switched on to MMT because they like a system that makes ah, sense. It's a system sort of thinking, yeah. And then he's um, a student of Minsky. Wow. That's a big wow. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, his early exposure to inequality maybe primed him to be interested in heterodox schools of economic thought. In a moment, we will hear Randall Ray explain the key insights of MMT. And in doing so, he will talk about the relationship between bonds and reserves. And I remember in my early days of learning about MMT, anytime someone mentioned bonds, my heart would just sink. <laughs> So the simplest way I can think of explaining reserves is that in order for commercial banks like the ANZ, say, and Westpac, in order for them to make payments to each other, they can't be dipping into each other's accounts because that would compromise the security of them as a bank. So they have to go through a third party, and that third party is the central bank. So they all have accounts at the central bank. And the money that the commercial banks have in their accounts at the central bank are known as reserves. Hence, we have the Reserve Bank of Australia. And meanwhile, we will also hear about bonds being thought of as debt, which in most circumstances they are, but they're a very different thing when it comes to the currency issuing federal government. Let's have a further listen to Randall Ray. We've been talking about this MMT, this modern monetary theory, and I did come across an article you posted in a blog called neweconomicperspectives.org, and in that article you've answered in a sentence, what is MMT? And I'll just read out the sentence. MMT is an analysis of fiscal and monetary policy that is applicable to national governments with sovereign currencies. Now, that for the lay listener is just jam-packed with economic jargon um, and many questions we could unpack from that, including what is fiscal policy, what is monetary policy, why are we only talking about national governments, not state governments, and what is this business with sovereign currencies? So I might set you the challenge of unpacking a whole career's worth of work <laughs> if you could unpack what MMT is for us. So we're talking about a nation in which the national government issues its own currency. And if that national government also issues debt, what we call in the U.S. Treasury bonds, those debts 
are also denominated in its own currency. So in the case of Australia or the U.S., we can actually use the same word because we both have the same name for our currency, which is the dollar. Mm -hmm. And in the United States and in Australia, the national government chose the dollar to be their money of account. We did it way back in uh, 1789, mm. and we gave to Congress, the U.S. Congress, the sole authority to issue the currency denominated in the U.S. dollars. Only Congress can do that. And when Congress uh, authorizes the issue of treasury bonds, those are also denominated in the U.S. dollar. So we never issue uh, debt in somebody else's currency. And that's what we mean by sovereign. So we can think of bonds as they're like debt. Yes, a, a treasury bond promises to pay you dollars. Okay. okay, And generally, they're going to pay you some interest. And then at the end of some period, which could be as short as 30 days or as long as 30 years, these things even go for 50 years. At the end of that period, then they also will pay you the principal. So they will pay you, say, 4% interest for 30 years. And at the end of the 30 years, uh, you will get the principal. So that's what a bond is. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to use the word borrowing because uh, it really makes no sense for a government that can issue its own currency to borrow back its own currency. Mm. Okay? You borrow. Firms borrow, but that's because you cannot issue dollars. You have to service your debt using dollars that you cannot issue. Mm. But the Australian national government and the U.S. national government issues bonds, and they service that with their own currency that they issue. Mm -hmm. Okay, So they're not really borrowing. What they are doing is they're giving you an opportunity to earn interest uh, over the period that they promise. It's not really a borrowing operation. And, you know, one of the initial insights that led to the development of MMT, Warren Mosler, this um, bond trader who specialized in sovereign government debt, <laughs> debt like that issued by the U.S. government and by the Australian government. Um, he understood debt. And he was thinking one time in the early 90s, when the U.S. Treasury issues bonds, we call that borrowing. But when the Central bank, in our case, we call it the Fed. When the Fed sells government bonds, we call that a monetary policy operation. But in both cases, the function of selling those bonds is to remove reserves from the banking system. So functionally, there's no difference between the Treasury selling a bond and the Fed selling a bond, this is really not borrowing. Mm. It is exchanging bonds for bank reserves because that's how banks pay for 
the bonds that they purchase. They use their reserves, which is nothing but a deposit that is held at the central bank. Mm -hmm. So once that clicked, Mm -hmm. then you understand what bonds are really for. Mm -hmm. It is to drain reserves out of the banking system and let the banks earn some interest holding the bonds. Right. So the huge, huge insight here is that everyone thinks governments are borrowing in order to spend. But what people are finally cluing into is that even though they're um, buying and selling these bonds, the federal governments are not borrowing their own currencies in order to spend the currency. That's right. In fact, the, the government has to put the reserves into the banks before it can even sell the bonds. Mm. And there are only two ways that the reserves can get into the banks. Either the treasury has to spend first. So if it is a household collecting their pension, or if it's a firm that is producing some output and selling it to the government, when the treasury spends, they get a credit to their deposit account at a bank. And the bank gets a credit to their reserves. That's how governments actually spend. Mm. And there is no other way the government can spend. There's no such thing as um, government having a choice. Oh, should I deficit spend? Should I spend tax revenue? (laughs) Should I borrow currency in order to spend? Those options don't exist. Mm -hmm. There's only one way government spends. It's by a key stroke credit. Our everyday way of talking about this is very misleading, isn't it? When we talk about taxpayers' money paying for the spending, that's completely not what happens. (laughs) Yes. We use the term deficit spending quite a lot, and I use the term myself. The way I understand that is a government spends into the economy. It doesn't retrieve the money through taxation. The difference is the deficit. Are you saying that that term deficit spending is an incorrect term? Yes. It's very misleading because um, the government is spending virtually every day. Some check goes out somewhere and somebody deposits in their bank account. And taxes are being paid every day. So every day there's some amount of spending and there is some amount of tax revenue. So we start our fiscal year. Government spends and it taxes. Do we know if there is going to be a deficit that year? The answer is no. We have no idea whether there will be a deficit, a budget balance, or a surplus. (laughs) The government is just spending, and it's getting some tax revenue. Then we move to day two, and on and on and on. At the end of the year, we can tally it all up. And we say, oh, well, the government spent $5.3 trillion and it collected $4.7 trillion of revenue. Therefore, it was a deficit. But we do not know that over the course of the year. Except that we run continuous deficits, and especially during COVID, where you're spending hundreds of billions of dollars into the economy with no taxation plan to cover that spend. You'd have to know that you're going to be increasing the deficit You'd, you'd be able to project fairly accurately, as with most years, that it's going to be a deficit spend. Well, we, we get surprised all the time. You know, before COVID hit, in the case of the United States, uh, we were moving to a budget surplus. This was not planned. 
uh, it wasn't planned at the beginning of the year. Oh, let's run a surplus this year. No. What happened was tax revenue boomed. And if COVID had not hit, I think we did hit a slight surplus very briefly. Uh, if COVID had not hit and we continued to do that, we probably would have run surpluses for a year or two, and it would have killed the economy. And <laughs> about to say, COVID averted a, an economic disaster by yes. uh, forcing government to spend into the economy and therefore <laughs> save the economy. So it's a strange twist of fate. The way you get to places with MMT, it's not intuitive, isn't it? COVID averted a disaster. Radio MMT on 3CR between 5:30 and 6:30 PM. The second and fourth Friday of each month. Radio MMT. If you like our show, subscribe to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. And you can find us through your favourite podcaster and give us lots of stars. And or give us a like on Facebook, Twitter or YouTube. Your support really helps. Because if you're not liked on social media, you don't exist. So there's Randall Ray describing how modern monetary theory talks about this phenomenon they call monetary sovereignty. And I think of monetary sovereignty as describing the fiscal space. How much fiscal space does the currency issuing government have? Um, Which is another way of saying how much currency can the currency issuing government issue before running into problems? What are the limits on the spending by the federal government? And that is a huge, huge question to answer because for the past few decades, one thing neoliberalism has been doing is attacking federal government spending by getting us all to think that the limits on government spending are much tighter than what they really are. Yeah, they're sort of saying that the limits on government spending is tax revenue. Governments can only spend what they can tax back or if if that falls short then they have to be very careful in managing their deficit and that's used as an excuse by conservative governments for austerity programs all the time we can't afford this and we can't afford that we can't do everything that we would like to do we can't even afford uh the good ideas that people put to us and what what we observe through mmt is that uh, rationale doesn't make sense Mm. Uh, so the bonds uh, are issued to make up the shortfall in taxation revenue. Mm-hmm. And one thing we do know is that the bonds do not service government spending. Uh, but if you just want to summarise it, for, for me, I find this co- quite handy. You just go, okay, it's all very complicated, but the main purpose of bonds is to provide interest, rock-solid interest, to institutional investors and in the banks. Mm. Bonds do one thing, and that is they convert cash into bonds. That's what they do. And then you have all these different reasons for converting cash, which is also in some cases known as reserves, uh, into bonds. So what MMT did, I think, was it saw through (laughs) this confusion that everybody has around what are bonds doing, and it managed to untangle that in order to see that the federal government is not really borrowing and they really should not be calling the federal government's debt a debt, even though it takes the form of bonds. Uh, We're hearing about the interest that the government is paying on their debt, and that's the interest that they pay on the bonds. That's new money into the economy. Now, whether it's well-placed or not is a whole other discussion. That interest payment is not preventing any spending in the future. No. And... 
The other thing to notice is that when we're talking about this phenomenon known as monetary sovereignty, uh, there are a few things that go into that and they all deserve a show of their own, but I'll just quickly run through them. So what that includes is, does the government issue its own currency? Does the government tax in that same currency? Does the government issue debt or bonds in that currency? And does the government not have too much debt in other currencies? And does the government float its currency in relation to other currencies? And if the answer is yes to all those questions, then you have a great degree of monetary sovereignty. Uh so, in our ongoing conversation with Professor Randall Ray, co-founder of MMT, he will mention printing money. And just to be clear, he is saying that that is how the mainstream looks at it. In fact, printing money has a very specific meaning for all economists, heterodox or orthodox. They are not talking about printers and paper. What they are talking about, I think, is that the central bank is engaging in what they call open market operations or OMO, which until now I thought was a brand of washing powder. But anyway, let's have a listen. So if we hear politicians promising at election time that they're going to run a surplus, we know that's just rubbish. It's an absolutely useless uh, goal. Uh, it's counterproductive. Now, I don't know how you budget in, in uh, Australia. I know how the budget is formulated in the United States. So we have uh, a plan. The, the budget gets approved by Congress and then uh, signed by the president. Ideally, that's what happens. A lot of times, we can't get a, an agreement on what the budget will be. Uh, but anyway, that appropriates the spending. And the, the budget has uh, a whole bunch of elements to it, and we get appropriations for different categories of spending. Then they also formulate tax law. The taxing law is completely separate from that process. And unlike the spending part, the tax law doesn't have to be revisited every year. So we've set the tax rates. And Congress could choose to make no changes whatsoever, which means we have done the spending part and we decide, ah, we're not going to change the tax part. That will remain what it was last year. <laughs> so what I'm saying is when they're formulating the spending part, uh, they are not changing the tax part to make sure that the two will balance. Now, I, I know we have various rules put on Congress that uh, are called pay for. So I'm Bernie Sanders, and I want to propose a job guarantee. All the Republicans will raise their hand and say, well, what's your pay for? And Stephanie Kelton tells the story, well, there's this guy that you go to, uh, and he can always come up with a pay for, <laughs> okay? Uh, you, you change some assumptions, and you uh, say, well, we'll have a tax increase five years from now to pay for this that we're doing now. Uh, so there are a variety of fixes that allow you to pretend that you have paid for. Uh, or if you're Republicans, what they want to do is uh, reduce taxes on the rich. They'll say, ah, we're just going to ignore that rule. Mm -hmm. Or what we did with COVID, ah, we'll just ignore the pay-for rule. So these things are not set in stone, and they're not taken all that seriously except as political devices. So what you're describing is the smoke and mirrors that 
really has got nothing to do with how the spending is actually happening, but a lot to do with scaring people into thinking that we can't spend money. And so when we say MMT is an analysis of fiscal and monetary policy, the fiscal part is the spending and taxing. The monetary part is that bit with the banks and the bonds. And MMT has managed to untangle a lot of that mess that most people couldn't see through. Yes. So in a sense, what we are arguing is you can't completely separate monetary policy from fiscal policy. Now, for people who've taken econ classes, your typical textbook, not ours, but the other ones, will completely separate those two. Mm. So fiscal policy is purely the treasury. Monetary policy is purely the central bank. Mm -hmm. And you never combine the two, okay? Then monetary policy, uh, it used to be controlling the money supply, but that's been pretty discredited, and that's not really... Uh, believed anymore, at least in the rich developed world. Uh, So what you do is you control the interest rate, and that supposedly allows you to control the rate of inflation. Mm -hmm. And in fiscal policy, you spend, you tax, you borrow. And last resort, and no one should ever do it, you print money. (laughs) Okay? So that's fiscal policy. The reality is the central bank is the treasury's bank. The central bank makes every payment the treasury makes, mm-hmm. and that is all determined by Congress. It's not controllable by the central bank. Congress decides how much to spend. The treasury is the one that um, actually cuts the checks, writes the checks, and the central bank is the one that makes all the payments. There is no independence here. There's no separation of central banking from treasury because the treasury uh, needs a bank and the central bank is the bank. So the central bank acts just like your bank acts for you. Your bank makes payments for you. You tell the bank to make your utility bill payment and your bank receives payments for you. And that is your uh, wage check. Okay. The central bank of the government is the government's bank. It makes all payments. It receives all payments. So every payment goes through the central bank. It can't be independent. Mm -hmm. And you can't separate fiscal and monetary policy that way. Well, at the moment, we have a whole lot of politicians around the world throwing up their hands and going, oh, well, the central bank's just raising interest rates. Too bad, but we just have to go with it because that's what the central bank wants to do. Yeah. But really, what what are you saying is really happening there? I would say this is very unfortunate. Uh, This myth of the potency of the central bank, Mm. there's this very strong belief that central banks can and should control inflation. They only have one tool, and that is the interest rate. So this is the overnight interbank lending rate. That's their only tool, and that supposedly allows them to control inflation. Now, there there is no reasonable theory or evidence that this tool actually gives them the ability to control inflation. Uh, I would say it's a very dangerous myth. But even aside from that, what we have said is that 
the central bank has the authority to make this decision over what the interest rate ought to be completely on its own. In other words, completely undemocratically. It answers to nobody on this. No democratic society should allow this. So even if we believed that the interest rate can manage inflation, it should not be the central bank's decision. It should be elected representatives who say, okay, we think inflation now has exceeded what we're willing to tolerate, and we want you to raise the interest rate. But it's accepted as obviously true that uh, democratically elected representatives uh, should not be allowed (laughs) to make this decision. So that is very bizarre. And you say you want to see it being democratically made because it's a decision that packs a wallop into households and businesses and so on. Well, sure, because, you know, the interest rate is a major cost of doing business. It's a major cost of owning a home, of buying a new car, of sending your kids to college. Mm. And it also is a distributional variable. In other words, when interest rates go up, there's a very different impact on low to middle income people versus high income people. High income people are um, wealth holders. And when interest rates go up, they get higher income on their wealth. So higher interest rates actually benefit them. It distributes income towards people who own things like financial assets. Mm. On the other hand, uh, low to middle income people are usually debtors, net debtors. They don't have any significant financial wealth. They may uh, own a car, but they have a car payment. They may own a house, but they have a house payment. And raising interest rates is going to reduce their net income. So what we're doing by raising rates is shifting income toward higher income people. So we're increasing the gap between rich and poor when we're raising interest rates. That's right. And if we're going to do this, you know, this is a very politically charged decision. Mm. And it should be entrusted to elected representatives, not to unelected central bankers who generally, uh, now I don't know the case in Australia, I know the case in the United States, Mm. they are high-income white men. (laughs) That's who the central (laughs) bankers are, overwhelmingly. Mm. And many of them come out of the financial sector, and their interests are with the bankers Mm. uh, and high-income people. So we're letting them make the decision that is... um, not consistent with democracy. I'm James Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle, and you're listening to Radio 3CR. There's um, there's so much to unpack from that, Anne, uh, the polarisation of wealth that raising interest rates causes. Uh, raising interest rates makes life harder for people who like a first home buyer or a business that's starting out and has a heavy exposure to to loans, they they get clobbered and they're the, the people who can at least afford it. Uh, and yet at the same time, people who have their money in the bank and get a higher interest rate return from their savings 
are making money uh, and this is supposed to adjust spending behavior in some way to bring inflation down it, mm. it's not just that they're clobbering people it's that as he says there's no evidence to show that adjusting interest rates is going to have an effect on inflation which is a very complex phenomenon it's hardly targeted is it and then where the mainstream economists go with that is they say well we can't trust the politicians to put up interest rates when you need to because they don't want to be doing things that are damaging their voters and so then they say, well, we better put up a big wall between what they call fiscal policy or um, spending and taxing and monetary policy, which is this interest rates. Yeah. So that's effectively putting up a wall between the Treasury, which enacts the spending decisions, and the central bank, which is the mechanism for making the payments. And Randall's saying that's just not what you want to do. No, and I was quite interested in his comments about how uh, these decisions are made by unelected officials who are going to affect lives dramatically for some people possibly losing their house yes and that's what bill mitchell calls the depoliticization of these kinds of decisions so that the politicians in a way they're glad they're not making them because then they won't get the blame <laughs> and there's no mm. uh, there's no accountability because it's it's um, been depoliticized mm. another thing is that until randall explained it here i had not really understood that the taxing side of things is completely disconnected from the spending side of things like they're two completely separate processes which makes sense because otherwise you'd be saying well you know the rba is phoning the australian tax office the ato and saying did you guys tax enough yesterday because we're about to do some spending <laughs> you know? it would seem quite logical that if your if your presumption is that the government spending is dependent on the, the tax that's coming in, that the spending arm and the taxing arm would be in close collaboration. But uh, no, they're not. The, the, the two aren't connected. Yes, which, which says to me how silly it is for any government to take credit for a budget surplus because the taxing decisions aren't coordinated with the spending decisions. And of course, I'm reminded of the recent surplus that happened under the current Labor government. Because what was most interesting to me about that was how the government's opposition reacted. So the coalition has spent years crowing about these surpluses. And now they're saying, well, even the drover's dog could have run a surplus this past financial year. Yeah. And what that goes to show is that Labor will never win this battle of rhetoric. So long as everyone's staying in this false narrative about surplus is good, deficit's bad, and uh, this is good and bad economic management. Because... The coalition just keeps moving the goalposts. So even when there is a surplus, well, apparently that's something the drover's dog could do. And when they say that, right, they are using a half-truth because they are saying something we would agree with, which is that a surplus or a deficit is simply an outcome. But the coalition doesn't say the rest of the truth, which is that a surplus or deficit should never even be a goal of government, as Randall just said. Yeah. So I just think playing the surplus game, it's like trying to please someone with a borderline personality disorder because you will never win the argument because they just keep moving the goalposts. Damned if they do and damned if they don't. And what Labor should be doing is dropping that whole uh, ridiculous game. It, it's a neoliberal game. It's a game that is designed to restrict government spending, which is a, a neoliberal ideology, small government, big private sector, and uh, surpluses, as we know. Uh, actually, I've been a bit confused by this because if if a conservative government wants the private sector to flourish and they try to run a balanced budget, that's setting up conditions for the private sector to fail. Hmm. 
so they're trying to do two opposite things at once, which is a bit bizarre. <laughs> That's where you start to wonder if they really don't know what they're doing and, and what they've done with their uh, many surpluses. They put the private sector into debt because instead of using government currency, they had to go to bank credit. Had to borrow privately. And I think the, um, the spending during COVID by the Morrison government mm. actually addressed some of the private debt issues that were created by the Costello government, which is to say that people used the money that they received mm. from the government during COVID to pay down their private debt. And ironically, it's been two conservative governments that caused the problem and then helped solve the problem. <laughs> well, I do wonder if our current Labor Treasurer Chalmers is trying to break out of that narrative because he did play down the surplus. He didn't make a big song and dance about it. Anyway, we are listening to an interview we conducted with Professor Randall Ray, one of the co-founders of MMT. Let's continue our conversation about interest rates. Randall Ray. This, this is not a complicated um, thing to follow, is that uh, the reason given for central banks to raise interest rates is to absorb excess spending in the economy, which they say is causing inflation. Yeah. And yet everybody knows that inflation is caused by oil prices going up, by supply shortages, etc., uh, and that the only people with excess money in the economy are the wealthy. Uh, and yet by raising interest rates, we reduce the spending capacity of those with loans, people at the other end of the uh, the spectrum. This is not a, a difficult thing to, to comprehend. <laughs> Why can't central bankers and governments understand this? Uh, I don't want to be too cynical. I think that the reason that we do it this way is because Congress doesn't want the people to know who they really represent. So they don't want to take the blame. They say, oh, well, hold it. We didn't raise the rates. It's not our fault that you're losing your job. It is this committee of experts who have decided that in order to fight inflation, sorry, you've got to be unemployed. We didn't make that decision. They want to pretend that a committee of experts is the best way to, to make the decision. Just want to agree with you that raising rates just does not work the way that the mainstream economists and the central bankers want to claim that it works. It mostly works not because interest rates go up a bit, so people say, well, I'll postpone buying that new car. Okay, that's not what happens. Raising rates usually causes financial crises and bankruptcies. That's how it works. You raise interest rates enough and you start getting people just cannot make the payments and they start defaulting. And then those defaults start spreading through the system and financial institutions themselves get into trouble and they start failing. And maybe you can get a bank run or two and that starts to spread. That's how they work. They work by causing what Minsky used to call present value reversals, which basically means financial crisis. Mm. Paul Volcker in the United States is a hero to many, including our current oh, head of the Fed. Please tell us the Volcker story. I think it's one of the great tragedies of economics. So I'd love to hear your version of it. We had this period that was called stagflation in the 70s, that period that I was talking about when I couldn't get a job, mm -hmm. where we had high unemployment, 
and high inflation at the same time. Now, supposedly, inflation comes from too much demand. But obviously, we did not have too much demand uh, because we had high unemployment. You couldn't get a job. Uh, the high inflation began in 1970 from rising price of oil. So you're absolutely right. It was oil price quadrupling in the early 70s, and it quadrupled again uh, after 1979. Uh, oil prices feed immediately into food prices mm -hmm. because when you're eating food, you're actually eating oil. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the pesticides, it's the fertilizer, it's the transportation, it's the processing. So 70% of the cost of food is oil. So food prices go up. Mm. And then the third component in the case of the United States is housing rents. All of our high inflations have always been those three items. And those items are not going to be impacted in the correct way by raising interest rates. That's why I'm saying raising interest rates really does not work to fight inflation because our inflation is not because people are borrowing and spending to buy things. That's not where it comes from. It comes from oil. Most people don't take out a loan to fill their car with gasoline, you know, or to go shopping at uh, the grocery store. Not, not yet. <laughs> you, I know. We do have people doing that in the U.S. right now. Anyway, um, so it doesn't really work that way. Mm. It, uh, it works by creating crisis. So Paul Volcker comes in. He was the chairman of the Fed. He was brought in because Milton Friedman, a monetarist, said, hey, look, we have a very simple solution to inflation. You don't have to cause unemployment. All you have to do is reduce the rate of growth of the money supply. Money causes inflation. Not too much employment, not demand that's too high. Money causes it. So Volcker says, okay, we're going to set money targets. They did the same thing uh, with Thatcher in Britain. So they experimented with monetarism. Uh, it didn't work at all. <laughs> First, they never hit their money targets. The rate of growth of money supply actually increased as they were trying to get it down. But the interest rate in the United States, what we call the Fed funds rate, it's the lowest interest rate we had, went to 20%. Mm. That's an absolute disaster. Uh, this is unheard of. Mm. It caused a tremendous financial crisis. Half of all of our thrifts, uh, thrift is a savings and loan. It's a sort of like the local bank that provides housing finance and so on. Uh, half of them failed. All of them were insolvent mm. because by raising the rates so high, he just killed them. Thrifts being what we would call building societies in Australia. Yes, mm -hmm. right. So it was pointed out to him. Look, the thrifts are holding 30-year mortgages, and so their asset is earning 6%. Volcker raises the short-term interest rate to 20%. So they've got to pay a very high interest rate on their liabilities, and they're only earning 6 Wow. So this is pointed out to him. So his advisor said, look, this policy is going to kill all the thrifts. <laughs> and I won't repeat the vulgarity, but basically he said, who cares? <gasps> because, after all, these are thrifts. You know, these aren't important to uh, Wall Street. So they were collateral damage not worth considering. 
I would call that the sociopathic approach to managing your economy. <laughs> and he was a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wasn't some crazy Reagan-esque Republican. He was a Democrat. Who needs uh, enemies when you've got friends like that? And then it hit the developing world because they had lots of debt in dollars. Mm. The interest payments on developing country debt exploded. They started defaulting on their debt. Then it came back and hit the United States again because who holds developing country debt? Well, the United States holds that debt. So now all of our big banks are also insolvent. Wow. It took us 10 years to recover from Volcker's experiment. Mm. But he's a hero. Okay, what did he do? He destroyed the financial system and uh, caused this deep recession. And by the way, inflation did eventually come down. Mm -hmm. But it was on the way down anyway because it was oil prices. It had nothing to do with too much demand. So Volcker proved that the theory was absolutely wrong uh, and that <laughs> money supply was a symptom, not the cause of inflation. That, that is true. But unfortunately, what he is remembered for is defeating inflation. So that's why he was Chairman Powell's hero. He defeated inflation. And now Powell wants to replicate that. What's the uh, de the definition of insanity again? Just to just run it by me again. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They're like, oh, you did something. Inflation started to fall. You must have done the right thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What should the government? So have oil done? prices were going down. the The most significant thing we did in the United States was we deregulated natural gas. Mm. So natural gas started competing with oil. And that is what helped to push oil prices down. That was our one policy that actually helped. So we're talking real resources being the issue and um, helping the inflation problem and not restricting your money supply. <laughs> well, we've gone down the rabbit hole of interest rates and central banks and so on. Um, before we let you go, is there any pieces of advice especially to anyone who's just starting out learning about economics that might set people in the right direction? Well, for um, students, um, there is so much uh, good economic literature that you can read. If you're in a mainstream program, you're mostly going to be reading the neoclassical approach. And when I first encountered it, you know, I know uh, that um, all of this is completely wrong. But if you get the hang of the math, it's sort of fun. And it's very easy because there's always one right answer. And that right answer is the intersection of demand and supply. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. Mm. Talking about widgets, you're talking about exchange rates, you're talking about money supply. You're talking about wages. It's always the same answer. So actually, it's very easy to do. <laughs> so you do that and you keep your head down. But then you go ahead and you read the classics. You need to read Marx. You need to read Keynes's general theory. And don't read the textbook versions. You got to read the original. Read Thorsten Veblen's Theory of the Leisure Class and Theory of Business Enterprise. And then you can branch out and you can explore these other schools of thought. So the, the three big ones, 
are the Marxist, the true Keynesian, and the institutionalist. And there's a tremendous amount of literature in all of those approaches. Uh, I studied all of them, and I think it does help to study all of them rather than just taking one of them as being, uh, you know, the, the truth. <laughs> you can find plenty that is useful in all of those what we call heterodox, non-mainstream approaches. And then finally, uh, what MMT tries to do is to take the best of all of those. Mm. So that really is what MMT is. Mm. We make that explicit in our textbook. Bill Mitchell uh, comes out of a more Marxist tradition. Mm -hmm. I come out of a more Keynesian tradition. The second edition will probably have a bit more institutional. Mm -hmm. uh, do I really think MMT might become the mainstream? And uh, on the one hand, yes, I, I, I think it will become the, the mainstream in the sense of being an integration of these heterodox approaches. Um, will it completely replace this neoclassical-based um, version of economics? I don't think it will completely replace it. I think that that will persist. It serves an ideological purpose, you know, the free market approach. I think it will be there, but it will be much, much less important because students can vote with their feet. And fewer and fewer students will vote to go that way. There will be more opportunity to study in the heterodox traditions. And in that way, economics would become like other social science disciplines. Right now, economics stands alone, where 90% of all the classes in economics are taught from the neoclassical point of view. If you study political science, sociology, anthropology, history, you'll get a variety of approaches in every other discipline. We have this uh, absolute, complete dominance by a very retrograde approach to social science which is neoclassical economics, that uh, I, I think will change. We, we're going to get a greater variety, and I think MMT uh, is an integration of that variety. It's not going to completely replace it, but it's going to be an option. I've met a lot of students going into economics and they do it quite idealistically because they're trying to fix what they see as these problems around us. And they're just given the wrong tools most of the time. So it's just exciting to hear you say that. I really appreciate your words of wisdom and your time for coming on the show today. So thanks very much, Randall. Thanks, Randall. Thanks very much for coming along and uh, putting things in perspective. Much appreciated. Okay, thanks a lot. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet. www.3cr.org. So if I sounded a bit excited there, Kevin, it is because I have been hankering to speak with an MMT economist about the Volcker story ever since I heard Warren Mosler mention it. Now, Paul Volcker, he was chairman of the Federal Reserve from 1979 to 1987. And this is a story that is so tragic, it's comic if you want some economic black humour. And yet, 
Wikipedia celebrates Volcker as widely credited with having ended the high levels of inflation. Think how bad we think we have it now with 3.85% and he was doing 20%. I think um, Keating had had, uh, rates around the same. We had interest rates uh, certainly in excess of 15, 16%. Yeah, Australia usually follows the American bad example. And, you know, in my mind, this is like saying, you know, we have a problem with gun violence because there are too many bullets. So let's just empty a machine gun into a crowded place and that'll get rid of some bullets. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) That's the kind of policy it is. Yeah. So we have a similar situation here where uh, Phil Lowe is raising interest rates and inflation is starting to come down. Phil Lowe, who's the governor of the Reserve Bank. And so people are going, oh, well, what he's doing must be working. The, The problem is that... Inflation is coming down because inflation was caused by factors such as gas prices and oil prices going up that were always going to correct uh, after people found different suppliers, etc. So inflation corrects not because of the interest rates, but because of something completely uh, independent of interest rates. Uh, And yet... The idiot that's that's pulling the lever up and down takes credit for it, <laughs> which is what Volcker did. And, and, and that same thing is happening now with Phil Lowe. History is repeating itself. And every time I hear details about the Volcker story, I'm shocked even more. Like, how about the part where he was deliberately killing off the only part of the financial industry that does any good in our society, which is that part that gets people into their own homes by lending them mortgages. So he was killing that off. <laughs> What were the name of those? Um, uh, those uh, they're called the thrifts in America, and we would call them building societies. Institutions that are giving entry-level borrowers uh, a foot into the property market, uh-huh. uh, owner-occupiers, and they sort of go, well, you guys are all just small fry. We don't care about you guys. We'll just wipe you all out. He made the entire industry insolvent and caused a worldwide recession. The, the, the injustice of it, taking credit for something which uh, you've only made the situation worse. A similar thing is happening here in Australia where by raising interest rates, it's adding to inflation. It's not helping because people with investment properties are passing on the interest rate rises onto their tenants. And that is a real contributor to inflation. Mm. And, and, and then they take credit for, for the inflation coming down only because oil prices and gas prices internationally have settled down after the disruption uh, and are finding the natural footing again. And they say, "Ah, oh, well, see, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it would be as though that someone was saying, oh, we're seeing an increase in traffic accidents because drivers are frustrated that they can't get to their destinations fast enough. So what we need to do is take off all the speed limits on all the roads and then everyone will get to where they need to go. (laughs) (laughs) What a way to manage the economy. Yes. (laughs) I think we're just about running out of time here, Kevin. Time for us to go again. We've got um, uh, Mafalda coming up next. Mm -hmm. Catch you later, Anne. See you then, Kevin. You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests. And we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his MMTed.org, educating masses on modern monetary theory. 
And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. So what's planned for next week? Kevin, there is still so much to talk about. We've got to expose all this rotten economics. Well, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good, and I get it. Do you reckon we could use a bit more music? Well, I made a list of all these terrible economic theories. Did you enjoy listening to that podcast? 3CR is a community radio station, and you, the listener, are a part of that community. Right now, it's our Radiothon. We need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donations really matter.